Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to Newcastle Libraries, your summer stories. Hi, this is Stephen Conti. Join me and Newcastle Libraries for your summer stories this season. My book, The Tolstoy Estate, is one of your summer stories at Newcastle Libraries. Get your copy now. Stephen Conti's debut novel, The Zookeeper's War, won the inaugural Australian Prime Minister's Literary Award for Fiction. His most recent novel, The Tolstoy Estate, has been described as a powerful, densely rich and deeply affecting novel of love, war and literature. In a review of the novel, Caroline Baum says he reminds us that travel is always possible in the imagination, even when reality goes dark, and that literature always leads us towards the light. Stephen Conti, welcome to the podcast. Yep, thanks so much, Dan, for inviting me. The Tolstoy Estate is an incredible novel about World War II. Tell us uh, about some of the characters that are involved here and why you wanted to write this book. Well, When I come to an idea, it's often the setting that actually leads me before the characters, the place, as it were. And so this was very much an idea and inspiration led by the discovery of this setting, this period of six weeks late in 1941 on the Russian front, where a German medical unit sets up a field hospital at the former Tolstoy estate to the southwest of Moscow. And I, I, you know, what we're talking about is a sort of dark German version of MASH. And, and the, uh, the account that I read of it was, was remarkable. A, a, a French woman, uh, quite famous in her own right, who visited only two weeks after its liberation from the Germans. And she spoke to all these local Russian custodians of what was a, a type of national shrine to uh, arguably Russia's greatest writer and, uh, and the, the, the writer of this war and peace, this great novel of resistance to a foreign invader. So everyone there, the Russians, and it turns out the Germans alike, were hyper-conscious of the symbolism of the place, the spiritual significance of the place as a kind of, as though it represented Russia's will to resist. And so it was that that really uh, drew me into it as a place. And then I, you know, set about populating it with the characters. So having come from a medical family myself, you know, I immediately, and being interested in history, I thought, ah, this is right up my alley. So uh, I took uh, a German surgeon because I've always been fascinated about the moral complexity of telling a story from the other side. And it just strikes me that uh, to portray good people who are uh, functioning within a, a wicked, a clearly wicked regime, is it, it's far more ethically, morally complex than perhaps someone who is just straightforwardly fighting for the Allied side to defend democracy. So Paul Bauer is my surgeon hero. I try to portray him as a, as a good man in a difficult situation. And he has the, I suppose, mashed-like 
gathering of fellow of fellow medicos, although unlike Nash, no women involved. The German army didn't let nurses anywhere, female nurses anywhere near the front. And at Yasnaya Poljana, the former Tolstoy estate, he encounters Katerina Trubetskaya, who is this fiery acting chief custodian of the estate and uh, who is determined to give the Germans hell. <laughs> How much of your novel is based on truth? So the situation, the Germans were there for six weeks. That is completely exactly as it happened. And mm-hmm. many of the that that sort of fundamental background, uh, the fact that there is an estate, uh, is all true. My characters are, are largely invented, uh, so you know, except for these historical characters on the um, on the periphery, my characters are inventions, and you know, in, in that I'm sort of following in the gigantic footsteps of Tolstoy, who who admittedly does bring in real world people into war and peace, most notably uh, Napoleon. But, you know, the bulk of his uh, intimate characters are inventions. You said you wanted to make Paul your hero. Uh, How conscious are you as a writer that the reader must connect with him, the main character, must have something in common, must like him? Yeah, I think think before answering that, I think it's probably worth acknowledging that there are some writers who pull off this terrific uh, manoeuvre of drawing readers into a story where they're the main character is dislikable or, or unreliable. I mean, perhaps a, a classic example would be Humbert Humbert in Lolita. And, you know, that's a very uh, cunning manoeuvre to try to draw the reader into sympathising with someone who is actually despicable. I didn't try that. I, I just am interested. I am just personally interested in the struggles of good-natured people in difficult circumstances. And... That so, in a sense, that makes my task easier, and I, I to to uh, allow the reader to identify with Paul and his struggles. And I think people do like to find something of themselves. We like to be heroes of our own journeys, and so if we can enter into uh, the journey of somebody who is, by and large, sympathetic, I think it does. As you as you imply, it allows us to engage more emotionally, more deeply with that character and with the story overall. And how important for you was it that Paul had a love interest? The love interest arguably is a cornerstone of the novel as an art form. It's in the, minor- in the majority of novels. And, you know, I've once heard it argued that if you look at uh, fiction right back to its inception with Mole Flanders and back in the 18th century, that one of the key tropes, one of the key themes of the novel has been, quote-unquote, the woman problem. You know, often the, the difficult lives that women led uh, and continue to lead, lead because of uh, the patriarchy and so on. But, but that, that story of love is a core thing. I, I once heard the social researcher and writer Hugh McKay say, we go to non-fiction too often to be informed, but when we turn to fiction, at some level we want to be impassioned. And I don't think that necessarily means that it needs to be a Mills and Boone sort of uh, love story. And, and, in, and in this case, I've tried to very consciously depict a thoughtful, somewhat sad, middle-aged connection based on prior disappointments and a clear-eyed view of the limitations of love to, to overcome hardship. 
So I've tried to give it those deeper shadings rather than the bursting with optimism type of of love of, of youngsters in their 20s. Welcome to Newcastle Libraries, your summer stories. Read, relax and join the conversation. Does there have to be loss to have those deeper shadings and to have a real love story? I believe so. I mean, at a simplistic level, we can't know happiness or what the, or value happiness without having experienced its opposite. Uh, life does require shade to be meaningful. At one stage, Katerina, the local custodian, talks about uh, the sadness, which is the coinage of a richly lived life. And I, I believe that to be true, that to pass through life without having that deep sense of light and shade and sadness would be not to have your eyes open to how tough it is for ourselves and, and for others, just as even the spectacle of others' hardships and, and difficulties, uh, I think would be a kind of a morally fatuous way to go through life. So I find sadness, as long as it doesn't slip into the pathology of depression, to be arguably a life-enhancing emotion. Do you draw on your own experiences when you're writing a love story from uh, World War II? Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's often it's it's often not uh, clear when I, people are writing historical novels or not evident actually how much is personal. I mean, at a, at a trivial level, a lot of this comes out of my own personal satisfaction, uh, fascination, having been the stepchild of a of a of a doctor and uh, the son of a, a nurse. And in terms of the love elements, well, sure, I'm 54 years old now and I have grappled exactly with those issues of the limitations of, of love to make life uh, an unending delight and, and my inadequacies of, of, of actually matching up to that romantic ideal. So it is absolutely steeped. It's a type of a crypto autobiography in that sense, definitely. So then in that case, let's talk about resilience and uh, creating resilience in this novel. It comes down to very much talking about medical treatment of war injuries. The Paul, your main character, is incredibly resilient when it comes to dealing with everything life throws at him, mainly because he's a doctor and, you know, they're very good at making that happen. And when it comes to people who are injured in front of him, how far were you willing to push this doctor? Yeah, well... The writer Jonathan Franzen says what you need to do is love your characters as a writer and then put them through hell. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's what I've tried to do with Paul. I think he's a, he's a stronger man, frankly, than I am. You, he is out there. I'm, I'm a mere writer writing about this stuff. He is a, a man, admittedly a fictional man, but there are many like him who are out there grappling with right at the coalface, as it were, of, of hardship, in this case, death and, and maiming and injury. And I suppose we know about, we're becoming aware in the last couple of decades about the mental cost that, that, uh, that uh, imposes on, on a lot of medicos. But then I think probably by and large, people who go into medicine are steady, probably more so than the rest of us or the average person. They probably do have more resilience they've stuck at their studies and and that would require a, a degree of emotional equanimity i would say they're not robots of course but paul is one of those he's strongly driven by duty he's strongly driven by a need and a desire to help his fellow man 
and uh, and I put that to the to the uh, to the most extreme tests. Do you consciously balance the physical um, resilience and the psychological resilience? How how front of mind is that for you? Because his life in World War Two and those helping people who are maimed, injured, or dead um, would take a toll mentally. Sure. Well, let's talk about the physical first. I mean, as a writer, it's one of my ambitions and one of my obsessions to really describe what it is to be embodied in the world. You know, I find when I encounter kind of a novel where it's just as if uh, these are disembodied talking brains or even disembodied talking hearts, I find that unsatisfying. I really want to know what it feels like when the, when the sting of ice is hitting your face in an Arctic blizzard and, and when your feet are freezing and the, your wrists are smarting from the cold or when Paul makes a, a, a journey to the front line and operates there right on the front uh, 15 kilometres away from Yasnaya Polyana, he experiences, he has to operate while he has a, a hideous illness and nausea that he doesn't know the source of. And that stuff matters because our physical privations do, just as a point of fact, undermine our psychological capacity to cope. So that was yet another way of putting Paul through hell. In terms of psychological resources, when you, uh, you, know, you, you talk about that, I think about, for a start, about Friedrich Nietzsche, what doesn't, make, what doesn't kill us makes, makes us stronger which I think is a complete nonsense and overstatement. And, and also thought, uh, throwing another philosopher, uh, Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, uh, I had a, there's a quote along the lines of, uh, uh, there is no hardship which nature has not formed us to endure. But when you look into it more closely, what he really means is, well, you either endure or you die. <laughs> and so I'm not, I'm... My characters, some of them cope and some of them are crushed. Some of them are resilient until they aren't. And uh, I think that as, you know, we are all discovering this year in, in our own ways because of COVID, we, we rise to the occasion in some degrees and in some ways we fail and some of us fail and some of us have had a hard time. Uh, it depends partly on our, our personal strength. And, um, but also, you know, resilience is sometimes about tactically ignoring the truth. And I'm going to read you a quick quote. So this is um, Paul at the end of a 30-hour surgical marathon. He's utterly exhausted. And there he's been invited by the, his crazy commanding officer to have a, a cognac to quote unquote celebrate, or at least to mark the end of this horrific shift. And uh, I'll just read you a, a shortish paragraph. His commanding officer's name is Metz. Metz's hands, he noticed, were trembling slightly as if they had been, as they had been towards the end of the shift, a symptom of the drugs he had taken to endure it, perhaps or an effect of them wearing off. Still, Bauer thought, who was he to judge? Every officer in the unit, and probably every enlisted man too, had a crutch of some kind to help them get by. Alcohol for Molyneux, for vitamin, bark, for Zerna, faith, and for Drexel, messianic pharmacology. And for himself, what was he leaning on? Cigarettes, certainly. Also books, he supposed, Tolstoy currently, and 
Tolstoy's fierce protector, who he's referring there to as Katerina, fiercely protecting Tolstoy's uh, reputation and memory. And so I read that out to demonstrate that coping isn't necessarily always good for us, or it's only temporarily a strategy that's going to impose costs on us later on, you know, particularly if it's a drug or an alcohol alcoholic, but if it's the only way to get through, then I guess it's adaptive, as the psychologist would say. Is that resilience then, if they have it, is it innate or is it learned? That is a good question. I, I, I'm going to cheat by saying 50-50. I mean, <laughs> human beings, are, we, we have evolved to be resilient. We, I mean, thinking about the current situation and the attempts uh, to discourage 20-year-olds or people in their 20s from parting, I thought, you know, the human species hasn't survive for two or three hundred thousand years by keeping your hands off of the opposite sex at the slightest whiff of trouble you know there's a kind of a, a will to life a determination to to persevere that is clearly deeply innate and uh and then beyond that yes uh we we of course learn from our environment and the example of our parents and perhaps the hardships on imposed and our training, but even that, you know, uh, I, I mean, perhaps you're alluding there, there's a kind of a conversation in the culture now about whether young people are less resilient than they were in the past uh, because they get driven to school now instead of riding their own bikes, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a complicated story, isn't it? Because you look at the training that, say, a, a military person gets to cope in combat and the privation of combat, say, in Afghanistan, and we know that that allows those men and women to, to survive in that situation and perhaps to thrive. But we also know that those very strategies make it difficult for them to thrive and survive when they get back into civilian life. And so when you say, is resilience taught? Well, it's taught in that circumstance, isn't it? But then are it's not necessarily the right lesson for every circumstance. Some of the things that we learn as a child to, to be resilient, don't serve us well later on in life. Why not dip your toes into your summer stories from Newcastle Libraries? Simply visit the Library Lounge on the Newcastle Libraries app or the website newcastle.nsw.gov.au slash library. Have you had the chance to talk to readers about their relationship with Paul and how they feel uh, about your characters? Yes, so I definitely have I've had this wonderful privilege of receiving some uh, fan email since the book was released. And yes, both from men and women. Most, most readers of fiction are, are women, just numerically, but I've had emails from both. And interestingly, the one that's leaping to mind is, uh, is a female reader who, who said, oh, she identifies much more strongly with Paul than with Katerina, you know, this, because Katerina's this firebrand and, and is in a sense stronger than, than Paul. She, she is really flinty uh, as well as, as funny and smart. And uh, so there was a, yeah, there was a female reader who was identifying with Paul. So, yeah, I, I believe he's the, folk, the main focal point character and, and people are really responding. And as I kind of suggested before, they're really responding to the fact that this is a, a, a love connection between two middle-aged people who have lived experience behind them. People have commented on that and said, oh, how refreshing that they're not 22. <laughs> Congratulations on the book, The Tolstoy Estate. Thank you for being part of the series. Thanks so much, Dan, and for your interest. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening to Your Summer Stories from Newcastle Libraries. Why not take a dip and a sip, then rate and review us wherever you listen. This has been a Newcastle Libraries Real Production. 